It's always dangerous to have notes on the stage when the windows are open. It's just a producer's note. Um, okay, so a couple shout outs as we dive in this morning. First of all, we just want to uh, acknowledge, and they're not going to be paying attention to this, but we, we, can, we can pay attention to this ourselves, that our, our friends at Front Porch Church in the Govins neighborhood of North Baltimore are celebrating their fourth birthday today. We're really grateful for them and the, the work that's happening there. Um, additionally, we're really grateful today that our friends at Hope Baltimore are celebrating one year as a, as a congregation in Baltimore. That's really exciting stuff. And when Katie talks about kind of the efforts and energies um, of, of, uh, of, of generosity in motion, what you may or may not know if you don't know the Foundry story is that you've played a role in creating communities like that, not just in our city in Govins and Station North, but across the state of Maryland and across the world. So we're, we're grateful for that, and we celebrate together those things that are happening. Um, I was just reading something in preparation for another thing that was just sort of about pastoral trust and the, the trust in the witness of the church over the past two years. The church not being the foundry, but like the kind of the American church. And uh, this is a study put out by Barna, and it, and it did this. It was like a phone survey, and here's what it aimed to do. It called people and sort of assessed their level of engagement with the church if they were kind of connected to one once or one or more times a month and those kinds of things. And, and it assessed this, and you, you just, you know, you, you see the kind of the, the contrast here in a moment. It, it said that for those who were um, very connected or described themselves as very connected, about 80% of them had a pretty high view of Christians and the church. Now, it doesn't mean they don't know someone that they'd rather, you know, like, can we not talk about that? Can we not talk about this thing? But, but for the most part, they had the ability maybe to disassociate or assume positive intentions. And, and whether we think that's right or wrong, that's a generally, that's, that's what Barna would, had published as a stat. Conversely, um, in those who had no affiliation with a church, had no connection in terms of personal commitment to a church or to Jesus, it was about 20% of people that had a positive view of church, Christians at all, over the course of the past two years. And, and, and Barna is just trying to accelerate not just the dissonance between those two numbers, right, but also to sort of highlight um, something that you probably already know, which is that, um, and, and this is true in your own personal life too, that, that, uh, that sometimes you look at a group of people who are particular fans of a band and you were like, yeah, I'm not going to get into that band. <laughs> uh, sometimes, Baltimore sports team filter on here, you, you discuss with one another as a community your respective sports affiliations, and I'm like, oh, I, you are the first nice person from that fan base that I've ever interacted with, you know, which maybe you're saying about me as a Baltimore sports fan. Like, like one of the generalities we can sometimes make is to look at the people and, and sort of then make a judgment call about about the, the, the real heart of the artist or the real heart of, in this case with Barna, the real heart of Jesus. 
Now, now, I'm not going to editorialize for you much further on that particular stat, so much as it is to say that one of the things we're going to look at in the text that we're going to look at this morning from Luke chapter 19 is, is to pay particular attention to the crowd of people who are excited to interact with Jesus until Jesus does something that they don't much like. Until Jesus does something differently than the box that they've sort of locked Jesus into. And how, by God's grace, it does not become a hindrance to Zacchaeus encountering the love of Jesus. But, 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 but for our purposes this morning and over the course of these past couple of weeks, really thinking to ourselves about what it means to be a community that, that rallies and cheers for and celebrates the transformation that the kingdom of God wants to do in every heart and story, including our own. Okay, including our own. So, so we're looking at Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, over the course of three consecutive weeks. Last week, we looked at it really from the perspective of the character and nature of Jesus. Today, we want to look at it from the particular lens of the crowd of people that are gathering here in Jericho to sort of take in what's going to happen, see Jesus, and, and, and in the end, get a picture of Jesus that they hadn't really intended. Okay, so let's, let's pick it up in verse 1 of Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, we'll read this together every week that we, we come into this room. So, so I'll read this over us. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see above the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him. Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up at him and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of the sinner. But, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. It's a beautiful promise there to, to wrap up that particular story from the scriptures. But for our time together this morning, let's think about for a few moments what it must have been like to be in that crowd. And let's pay attention to the muttering of the crowd as well as the muttering that may come from our mouths this morning. So, so to come back to, uh, again, kind of what's happening here, um, if you've heard this story more than one time, and I suppose some of you may have, um, you may have just been dropped into some random VBS sometime around your eighth birthday, remembering the ants on a log and the church basement smell. That would be my story. Um, not super acquainted with church and church people per se, but, but I had heard that there's like a song in motions and when a bunch of other kids were doing it, and I 
I didn't really know what was up. I kind of went, <laughs> well, you guys do some weird stuff in this basement. All right? So, so, so here's the reality. Jesus is, is trying to reach out to, um, for all the people in town, going to the house of a tax collector. And, and, um, and this group of people that are here to see Jesus, um, the more times I hear the story, the more I sort of get a personification of them that likely is not accurate. The personification I tend to drift to the more times I read it without thinking about it, it's sort of a stodgy group of fundamentalists, get off my lawn kind of people that just hate everything, right? Did you try the new restaurant in town? I hate the new restaurant in town. What do you think of the Raven season? Oh, they're just going to fall apart. You know, like that kind of vibe about, it's a really sunny day. Could have been five degrees cooler, like that. If we're honest, though, about the kind of people that are sort of rallying around Jesus place to place, we actually see a couple different things. If we actually pay attention to the rest of the Gospel of Luke and other times Jesus is going to town, certainly there's haters and certainly there's naysayers, but let's consider some of the other people who may have been in that crowd. There's certainly a group of people that just want to be there for some kind of show, some kind of spectacle, and are just willing to follow Jesus superficially anywhere Jesus is willing to lead them. Right? So, so Jesus hanging out with a tax collector, like that disrupts that. Because I want to hang with Jesus. I want to go where Jesus goes. I'm like ready to go take it to Rome. How about this? How about the other people that maybe came to Jesus over and over with physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional questions about the nature of God and how it intersects with their life and story, right? In the crowd of people, there's certainly folks that, and we see this other times, that maybe have brought someone to, to maybe encounter Jesus in some particular form. How about this? Um, that Jesus oftentimes, you know, we see this with... Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the children being allowed to, to make their way to Jesus and the disciples not liking it. Maybe at this point, there's that, that words kind of traveled that Jesus is like kind to children and the disciples are kind of the stodgy ones. And so maybe there's people that want blessings on their children or, or want an opportunity to, to, to sort of, you know, be celebrated in that particular way. Um, and, you know, and, and so, so other times and in other instances, what do we see Jesus do? Pay very close attention to people like this dismissing the people that, that are sort of in the positions of power, kind of behaving like they have it all together. And so Jesus gets to this town with all of this group of people willing to engage with Jesus and looks to the sycamore fig tree to call down the person that all of these people likely would that would likely be like a nemesis to all of them, right? The chief tax collector, the person that's probably responsible for some level of financial exploitation in their story, the person who's maybe like, like created and leveraged, you know, a really nice life for himself on the backs of really, really difficult things. And people who have like really like just really mixed up a relationship with Rome and what that's supposed to look like. And so for all of the hype and all of the excitement and all of the, the, the we're ready to see what Jesus is going to do. It's such a letdown in verses 4 and 5, when Jesus calls Zacchaeus out of the tree, and it's not to kick him in the face. <laughs> and it's not to, give G not to give Zacchaeus his comeuppance. It's to like, hey, I'm going to hang at your house. And then, and then the crowd's like, what are you, well, then what are you going to do with that? Are you going to like 
rip down the walls? Like, no, I'm going to celebrate that salvation has come to your house. It says here in verse 7, all the people saw what was going on and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, you can imagine that this is not like expressed in sort of a monolithic way, like the applause meter. If you've ever gone to like a taping of a record show, he's going to be the guest of a sinner. We're all saying this together. They're probably saying it in ways consistent with, with their own frustrations and feelings, right? Some of you that tend to be passive aggressive may, may relate to those in the crowd that would go with the aggressive side-eye approach to expressing that he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Some of you who are more vocal in your expression may um, add some other adverbs to that particular phrase to express your frustration. There's probably some that are saying it from a place of anger. There's probably some that are saying it from a place of sadness. There's likely some who are saying it from a place of fear. Like, wait, you're going to go hang out with this guy? And like, what's that? I mean, I thought all these things about you. And so what you've got is a group of people throwing all of their preconceptions, all of their like projections onto Jesus, muttering to themselves, unaware in this moment that what Jesus is actually trying to do is set free at least one component of their story, right? Like he's trying to set free, obviously, the immediate source in this moment of financial oppression, at least through tax collection. They can't see it. (laughs) And the muttering of the crowd begins to expose, I think, something really important to you and I which is that in our pain, in our frustration, um, in the journey of life, when we're hurt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, like we can fall into the trap of projecting things onto Jesus. And, 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 and in the struggle of letting the love of God work in us deeply, miss the opportunity for, for God to show us how his character and nature and love aim to transform not just Zacchaeus, but those who, those who have been hurt emotionally, those who have been traumatized, those who are grieving, those who are afraid, those who are frustrated by the culture of their town. Like, like Jesus wants to heal those things too. But to linger in that muttering is really important. What, what happens next? The text doesn't actually tell us. But I think you know in your own life what happens when you go to places of muttering. Right? Do I find a group of people that, that stoke my angst, stoke my outrage, and, 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 and prey on my fear to further control my, my, my pain and my grief and my sadness? Or do I, do I push myself to be around people that, that take this, this thing that I had projected and expected about Jesus and as I'm learning something more surprising about the character and nature of God, I'm also learning something about myself. And I'm learning something about God's heart to transform my pain in this particular moment. Like, and, and again, we're not told the, the end of the story. But, but one of the things we see, not just here, but in other times, is, is that oftentimes when Jesus is, is healing or working in someone else, it evokes an emotion. It evokes a response. And in that response, I think there's an opportunity to pay attention to the thing that God is trying to do in our story. 
You see, God is not trying to sentimentalize or go, hey, guys, we're just, we're just going to all hold hands and we're gonna, it's all going to be good. We're all going to have Thanksgiving dinner together. You're bringing the gravy. Like, <laughs> you're bringing the mac and cheese. Like, I don't think God's trying in this case. Jesus is trying to sentimentalize and pretend that, like, come on, let's just get over what Zacchaeus did. Can we just all be friends? Sweep it under the rug and, like, look at each other and walk around town like nothing ever happened. But what he's saying is, as we deal with and confront Zacchaeus' sin, you have had a reaction in your response to the, the things that Zacchaeus has done that has likely led you to places of bitterness and malice and gossip and rage and grief that if you don't check and confront you're going to, Zacchaeus is going to get all of this freedom and you're going to stay in that place. Do you know anyone like that? <laughs> Has that ever happened that way? Have you ever seen yourself in that particular story? Jesus isn't being soft on sin in this passage. He's not saying that it's not a big deal. What he's saying is, there's freedom for the person who's invited down the tree past their pathway of shame. But there's also freedom for the, the ones who are pretty convinced that they're never the problem. And that if everyone else just flew right and did the right thing, then the world would be a better place. And if we don't confront that posture, we're missing an opportunity to God, for God to stir our heart and our affections to a deeper understanding of the kingdom of God. Um, when you see a viral video that has to do with someone doing something embarrassing, right? There's kind of a continuum of response. <laughs> um, uh, I think about one, one particular camp is, is kind of in the group of like, they deserve it. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, right? Like, like, so if you're, you know, jumping off a side of milk crates and you fall on your face, I'm going to laugh at you, right? There's someone that's over here. Maybe the next kind of step to the right is, I kind of feel bad laughing, but that's pretty funny. Right? Maybe you can see yourself in something like that. Over here, you might see, like, kind of this is where I often land is like, man, I'm so glad that cameras and social media were not a thing when I was in high school. Right? Um, and, uh, I'm, or, or in this case, maybe just I'm really glad this didn't happen to me. I'm really glad that happened to you when you jumped off the milk crate or you walked off the curb or whatever it was. Um, and then maybe over here, all the way to um, the other polarity is, I, I just, I'm really, I can't even watch that because it could be me and it might be me the next time, particularly in a society where everyone, when something silly is happening, is like. And, and I think there's a similar deal happening here, right? There's, there's got to be people in the crowd that have got to be somewhere on the continuum, but like, man, I, I, just, I, I want to be here to see that he gets what he deserves. I'm here for it. You got popcorn? <laughs> Anyone selling souvenirs, t-shirts? You got someone else here that's like, man, get him, Jesus. They got someone else maybe over here that's a little more empathetic. Like, okay, I don't want to be here for it, but like this guy really needs help because he wouldn't be doing the things that he was doing if he really understood the grace and mercy of God. And then all the way over here, perhaps, is a person that goes, man, but for the grace of God go I. Right? But, but, but for the grace of God go I. If I you know, and, and in my own self-righteousness, if my own um, 
way that I express my convictions becomes unchecked, I can be just as hard-hearted, I can be just as cruel, I can be just as awful, and I can do just as much damage to other people. In, in his book, How We Love Matters, I'm going to reference it two times. This is the first of two because we're reading it on, on Monday nights. There's a book club of us kind of going through this right now. Um, he talks about in the second chapter about attending a prison ministry that he called the, 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 the most freest expression of, of people encountering the love of Jesus that he's ever seen. And, and, and the reason why he uses that analogy is like, because there's just no preconceptions about, that anyone's awesome, that anyone doesn't have a story, that anyone doesn't have a reason to be humbled by the grace and mercy of Jesus. He elevates that as one of the most freeing places to ever come to a table with brothers to worship. Why? Because they're not sizing one another up. I'm like, mm, you, me, where do, do I, you know, they understand that the, the grace and mercy of Jesus transform all of us. And that, that, and that if, even with good intentions, our attempts to be the gatekeepers and the arbiters aren't just doing damage to the, the Zacchaeuses of the world, possibly, but to our own hearts and our own story, right? We, we don't get the collective celebration, and, and, and I don't know why. We don't know why, but, but, I, but I offer it to you as something to consider in our own story, that the love of Jesus doesn't, doesn't just want to, to, to transform that person that's so different from you, that's so, but, but, but just like in the prodigal son narrative of Luke chapter 15, the love of the father wants to transform the younger brother who's gone and been wayward and squandered, but also the older brother that thinks that, that, that he could just earn, earn the favor of the father just by being awesome and doing everything rightly, which if you know your heart, <laughs> it's a fool's errand. It truly is. And if you're a perfectionist like me, you'll know how, just how crazy that will drive you and how, how much that can contort the picture of grace really working and moving in your story. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus says to him, him being Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and save what was lost. What we see here in this text is hints of something that we'll see other places in the New Testament. That Jesus is not just interested in saving souls, but is also forging a new picture of community. A new picture of community that, that pursues and seeks out those who have been lost, those who have been left behind, those who are wayward. But, but, but in that idea, that definition of who are the sons of Abraham, I mean, who are the ones that really belong at the table? What Jesus is ushering in, to, to, trying to send a message to the community writ large here in Jericho, is that there's a new way for us as followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters, to relate to one another in light of God's love, in light of the understanding that we too are sons of Abraham, right? And, and this goes back to the idea um, that, that, you know, a lot of times we think of um, you know, our faith is just a very personal, individual thing. 
right? And I, and I understand why we do, because we don't just want to live vicariously through grandma's faith or great-grandma's faith or your brother's sister's cousin's uncle's former roommate that prayed one time and went to church two times, and you feel pretty good that you are, you're good with God because they're good with God. <laughs> like, I understand why we emphasize the personal nature, but, but all through the New Testament, all through the New Testament, one of the things we see Jesus trying to do, the Holy Spirit trying to do through the church is, is, is show and demonstrate to cities and cultures how the way of Jesus stands in contrast, paints a better picture of community than, than the cultural drift of their towns and places. <laughs> that there's for the people of God in Jericho, a new way to see one another in light of God's love. For the community, a new way to see Zacchaeus. For Zacchaeus, a new way to see the community and how to relate to them. How do you live out hard truth and ridiculous grace, right? When, when, when you've been exploited by that guy and when that guy is like trying to tell you something about their story and you're like, yeah, well, I know, but it, it feels like you're kind of leveraging me again. Like, like this is messy, there's a word that gets used in the New Testament to describe the, the you know, sort of the collective um, church. It's a Greek word for, called oikos, all right? And I'm just, I'm offering that to you not because we're going to do a deep dive on oikos so much as that I'm going to quote something that references places in the New Testament that would be used to describe that word, right? Which is, if you don't know how the rest of the New Testament goes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you've got the book of Acts, which tells the story of the church. How did we, how did we all figure, you know, when we received Jesus in these particular places, how did we start to like carve out a life for ourselves in light of that? You know, what, what did it look like when the Spirit of God got a hold of us in this town and in this town and this town? But then there's a whole bunch of letters written to followers of Jesus in respective places and spaces. And, and there's, there's orders for like, how do we structure our worship service? There's, there's directives for how to think about doctrine, how to think about Jesus in light of the culture in the town because they've got views on sex, they've got views on worship, they've got views on how money gets spent. And so certainly you can find spaces like that in those New Testament letters. But one of the things you will see over and over and over again is that what, what the love of God is aiming to do is unwind all of the ways people have compartmentalized one another in the, in the communities as a whole. And, and, and that what, what God is trying to do through this oikos, this family, not a building, not a service, not a, a study, but, but to redefine how, how people who once were stratified and hated one another and didn't hang out in the same room and couldn't make eye contact could, in light of Christ's love, show a new picture of the family of God to the city they're in. Dan White Jr. says this about the oikos. That the oikos is the imperfect, messy, relational, organic, but organized amoeba of the first century church. Oikos was the hot mess of God's inbreaking kingdom that supported early Christians for mission in a city, for maturing in love, for the practice of the Eucharist, for the collision of racial diversity, for resistance to paganism, and for being shaped as disciples. It's a new way to see ourselves being formed. You know, one of the things I think about in, in the crowd of people, we go back to the crowd for a minute. In 2022, 
when you witness something that outrages you, can you not turn away immediately from the situation itself, go to your little tribe, go to your following, and find a bunch of people who will support you in your collective outrage? Who will tell you, Jesus is such a blah, 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 and you can be so far down. And, and, and like versus a group of people who might help you process what you've experienced in light of their experience, in light of what they've taken in, in light of their pursuit of Scripture, in light of... And I don't want to romanticize church because drama much, complicated much, frustrated much. To, to, to really embody the idea that the church is not just a building or a program is, is to have a willingness to enter one another's messes. Not for the sake of gossip, not for the sake of posturing, but for the sake of really hearing and stoking and pointing one another, not to our outrage, not to our fear, but to the heart of Jesus when it's hard truth or ridiculous grace that we're pursuing. So much easier said than done. So I don't want to paint a romantic picture of the things a church can be because it's very possible that we can be trying to do this well and our feelings still get hurt. (laughs) And we still find ourselves super frustrated and we still find ourselves in a place where we're like, man, I'm trying to sort this out and I don't have all the answers and I disagree with this person and I disagree with this person. But how does the love of God, again, draw us back together as a community listening humbling ourselves and pointing one another, not just to our own pats on the back about how good we are and how dumb you are and how, don't you know how many times I've read this chapter and how many times have you read this chapter? Okay. <laughs> but, but, but to really say, how does the grace and mercy of Jesus invite all of us to see one another through a new lens, through a new way to see? I think about the opportunity that we have as a collective. And and when I say, are we making it easier for people to meet Jesus? You know, I think one of the the, the points of grace in this text, right? If If you're Zacchaeus and man, you've just been, you've been surrounded, it feels like, by people who are naysayers and just cannot believe you belong in the, the good graces of Jesus. Certainly, we'll talk about this more next week, you begin with running to Jesus. <laughs> you begin with running to Jesus. But, but for those of us in this room who, who are, as we think about ourselves in the crowd, is to say, I want to have convictions. I want to have opinions about Jesus. I want to have experiences about Jesus. But, I, but, I, but I, I've been called to carry them in a way that reflects not just my own posture of having it all together, but rather the heart of God. So it may not change whether or not you have convictions, but it may change how you carry them. When was the last time you heard someone to say, um, followers of Jesus are the best listeners I know? Maybe that's a work God's going to do in your story in someone's life this week. As we think about what it means to, to be a community Um, You know, here we've been taking these moments and just thinking about 
the church and, and for the foundry here in this moment as a collective of people who, who, who like we don't necessarily know each other and we don't know one another's stories and we may not all be Ravens fans and we'll never agree on what to have for lunch. Could we agree on the, the idea that we're coming together for the grace and the mercy of Jesus to sort of shape and stoke and poke at the, the, the grief and the anger and even how we express our success and our victories in a new particular way. Um, Albert Tate talks about this through the lens of a blood-stained table. So there's my second Albert Tate reference here for our purposes. That the, when, he, when he talks about a family table, right, it, oftentimes in someone's house, the family table is like stained and there's some kind of story. There's some kind of stain that makes it look nice. But then there becomes like stains from like coffee rings and someone's spill. And then there's like, is that like a piece of cheese from someone's scrambled egg three days ago that got down into the crack somewhere? Like family tables are messy places. They're messy places. But the family table, which is this analogy Albert Tate uses in, in his book, becomes this place where, where we understand that we can make a little bit of a mess. That, uh, that the blood of Jesus is the covering on that table that can absorb our messes, it can absorb our questions, it can absorb our posturing, it can absorb our self-righteousness, it can absorb our grief and our anger and our frustration. And thank God, because we got all those things and then some, right? As we come to communion and we receive bread and cup, it's, it's a reminder that the blood-stained table of Jesus that there's a seat available to you not because you have perfect theology today. Not because you really behaved last evening. Not because you have to keep on sinning so that grace will increase in your life. You know, because you only know chaos and, you know, it's a place to remember that the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus, is where we find rest, is where we find hope. It's where we find a new way to relate to one another as a community. And it's the only way that this collection of us can be good news outside the four walls of this assembly for any sort of sustained period of time. And we might have a good outreach. We might have a good Sunday. But to really surrender ourselves to the love of Jesus today. To let that love of God really wash over our story individually and collectively is what we come to do when we come to the Lord's table. So there's four stations in the room. They're all gluten-free. And I invite you, um, after I pray, to, to come up and to receive. Just take those back to your seat and, and just... Take a few minutes to reflect and think on the, the invitation to belong at the bloodstained table of Jesus because of the things Christ has done, not because of your ability to earn it. God, thank you that we are fully known and fully loved, which means you know 
even more than the crowd knew about Zacchaeus. And it means you knew even more about the crowd than Zacchaeus knew. And in this position and story where where that mutual distrust led one guy up a sycamore fig tree and worked another crowd into a frenzy of muttering, God, would you invite our hearts? Would you challenge our hearts to see how your love wants to to transform our muttering and invite us out of the tree and into your presence? Thank you for this opportunity that arrives in our town, in our moment, because of the grace and mercy of Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen.